Yeah. All right. We're going to get in the word now. Excited for this. We're going to have our good friend, member of our church, Rob, come and preach for us. Rob is an amazing man. He's very mild-mannered. He's just calm. He's got his coolness about him. Um, when he preaches, he might be different. I don't know. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but he's just got it. He's just mild-mannered, a lovely man. He absolutely loves Jesus, and he has a heart for mission um, and advancing God's purposes um, in places that the gospel has not yet reached. And so um, he's going to come up, and he's going to kind of give a brief biography of who he is and what he does, so I'm not going to keep on talking. And so let's give a warm welcome to Rob H. everyone. Okay. Uh, yeah, so my family and I have been coming here off and on, recently more off uh, than on because of COVID, uh, for the last year and a half or so. And we live south of the border. I work for an organization called Radius International. I direct a training program. Uh, it's actually based north of the border, but our campuses are south of the border. We have students from all over the United States, from about 24 years old to 35 years old, and they are going to tr their training uh, in a cross-cultural context for cross-cultural context. So they come down south of the border, uh, we lock them down there for a while, uh, no internet, uh, and, and they, they're down there for about nine months, uh, and uh, we get lots of opportunities to train them. Uh, there are about 7,000 unreached people groups uh, around the world, people groups that have no or very little access to the gospel. And of those 7,000, 3,000 have no uh, workers uh, among them. So they're, even if they wanted to have access to the gospel, they could not. Uh, 3,000 unreached language groups. And that's uh, who we are training. We are training uh, North Americans to go over, and they're all over the world. Uh, and this year we have 63 students, uh, and it's a really exciting uh, opportunity for us to be doing that. We're in our, we're in our third year. My wife and my son are sitting over there. Um, we're going to be talking this morning about uh, Barnabas and Saul uh, and the church at Antioch sending them out. I was talking to some of my colleagues this week uh, about this, this text, and it's like, I'm training people to do this. And it just so happens that I get this text that's like giving red meat, uh, you know, to someone. Here you go. Uh, so uh, before I do that, I, I actually have uh, four children. If we can show that picture, uh, 20 years ago, back when Bill Clinton was the president, my family and I found ourselves that one right there. Yep, we were in Tanzania, East Africa, and we were there for a number of years, uh, planting some churches and developing a Bible school to train pastors. And so that was 20-some years ago. And then the next picture was in May. We had a COVID wedding. Uh, that, that little girl that was slipping through my arms there in the previous picture, she's the girl that got married. Uh, and so that was back in uh, May. And between those two pictures, we were more than a decade in Tanzania. And then we were, we were in West Asia uh, and East Asia for a number of years, and then went back to our home state of Detroit, and I was leading a mission agency there. And then a few years ago, we came down to uh, Mexico to be involved in the training. And I still do a lot of uh, travel. In fact, two weeks ago, just a day or two before the earthquake, I was in that country. Uh, and, and 
seeing some friends there uh, and, and helping them think through their next step in ministry. But that's enough about me. You guys want to hear from God, don't we? So let's go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. I want to read uh, the entire text, 12 verses. There are two scenes here. We'll read both of them, uh, and then I'll rewind a little bit to bring us up to speed uh, to the beginning of that text, and then we'll dig in and we'll look at, we'll look at what uh, God has for us today here. So Acts chapter 13, and I'll be re reading from the New Living Translation. Acts 13, verse 1. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, who is also called Niger, Lucius from Cyrene, and Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. There, in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet, named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye. Then he said, You son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good, will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you have spoken to us in your word, and you have shown us these events that we read about this morning in Antioch and on Cyprus, pray that your spirit uh, would uh, bring these words alive in our hearts and in our minds, uh, that we would engage and think and uh, process and wonder uh, how uh, these words, these stories, impact our lives today and, and, and shift uh, our focus at times in, in, the, in the activities that we're engaged in. And so pray that you would uh, bless our time now together as we think about these, uh, these two stories here, in Jesus' name, amen. So there is uh, a shift 
in Acts chapter 13, a shift that really begins in chapter 9 when we see Paul. He was referred to as Saul and then Paul in the text, same man, two different names for the same man. Uh, the shift began in chapter 9. He, he was converted in 9, but before that, he was a chief persecutor of the followers of Jesus Christ in, in chapter 7 and chapter 8. So we have a shift from, from Peter uh, to Paul. Just before our text, we see that Peter, uh, had, in chapter 12 and verse 17, uh, left Jerusalem, the center of Christianity at that point, for another place. And now this, uh, the, the author fades away from Peter and begins to put a spotlight on Paul, this former persecutor of the church and now a, a proclaimer of the gospel message. He comes from the forefront. And the, and the scene shifts from the church in Jerusalem now to the church in Antioch, which was primarily a Gentile church, which was a new thing. The year is probably around 45 CE, about 13 years after Jesus' death, and somewhere between 7 and 10 years after Paul's conversion. Before we uh, dig into our text, we have to ask a couple questions, or at least I'd like to ask a couple questions. How did this church in Antioch start? We open in chapter 13, and here's a church in Antioch, and there are teachers there teaching. Well, how did that church start? And how did Paul, or Saul, how did he get from persecuting the church, uh, becoming a Christian in Damascus? How did he get from Damascus to Antioch? Okay, Because our text opened, church in Antioch, uh, uh, Saul, Paul preaching there. If you look back at chapter 11, I want to read, uh, you've covered this, but I just want to read it as a reminder. We'll see the birth of this church at Antioch, chapter 11, verse 19. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death, a persecution that Paul or Saul was involved in, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. That's our Antioch. They preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. Okay, So here you have uh, followers of Jesus. Many of them, we don't know their names. Uh, they came to Antioch, and they began preaching directly to the Gentiles. And many uh, turned to faith in Jesus Christ, and these unnamed uh, believers gathered them and assembled them into this, this group called the church in Antioch. When the church at Jerusalem, verse 22, heard about what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of God's blessing, this was, this was a new thing. Right? To see a, a, a predominantly Gentile gathering of believers functioning as God's family. So Barnabas went from the Jerusalem church uh, and he was filled with joy, the text says, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tarshish to look for Saul. Okay, that's Paul. We have Barnabas, now we have Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. 
It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Okay, so here's, here's how the story unfolds. Some men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch for the first time, began sharing the gospel message with the Greeks. Many, many Greeks, many Gentiles believed the church grew. The Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to investigate the authenticity of this church. Is it real? Is it a true movement of God's spirit? Are these, are these our brothers and sisters in Christ? Barnabas went there, found that it was genuine, found that it was authentic. The church continued growing, continued multiplying there in Antioch. Barnabas went to Tarshish, which was Paul's hometown, to look for Paul. Barnabas had met Paul uh, several years early. He was the one that introduced, Barnab or introduced Paul or Saul to the Jerusalem church, to the disciples in Jerusalem. Because remember, the disciples in Jerusalem would have been terrified of this guy Saul because he was killing their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they wondered, who is this guy? Barnabas befriends him, brings him into, into the church of Jerusalem, and then uh, Saul, or Paul, goes back to Tarshish. And actually, we tend to think of uh, Paul as beginning his missionary activity here, but he had been in Tarshish for seven years probably, and he was certainly preaching, and he was certainly establishing churches, and we know that because later, in chapter 15 and verse 41, uh, we'll, see, we'll see Paul going back through this region of, of Syria and Cilicia. Tarshish was in Cilicia, and he was strengthening the churches that were there. So Tarshish was a base for Paul for a period of time. So he had a lot of experience preaching the gospel to Gentiles and gathering Gentiles into, into assemblies of believers that we call churches. Okay? And that's why, that's why Barnabas went to Tarshish to get Saul. Here's a guy who's experienced in preaching the gospel and organizing believers into churches. And so Tar Paul comes to Tarshish with uh, Barnabas, and what do they do there? They teach the church in Antioch for an entire year. Now, we can move past that very quickly, but I think that's a very important and foundational part of, the entire, of my entire message this morning, actually. So when we, when we enter Acts chapter 13, Barnabas and Saul and others have been teaching the church for a whole year. Okay? And I'll come to exactly what they were teaching in just a minute. At the end of that year, Barnabas and Paul went to Jerusalem with an offering. We heard, we heard of a church in, uh, in West Asia who is suffering uh, now. Well, the church in Jerusalem was suffering, and so the church in Antioch, we saw that in chapter 12, sent Paul and Barnabas down with an offering. They came back to Antioch with a man named John Mark. And that's where we enter chapter 13. Now, Antioch was... Uh, actually quite a large city. It was the third largest city in all of the Roman Empire. 500,000 people. That's a massive city. Okay, so it was, it was an urban context, densely populated. It was a commercial and military center. So it was a strategic Roman city. Lots of people, lots of traders. Uh, there were many different ethnicities that were in Antioch, and we see that even in a minute in the leadership team uh, that formed uh, in Antioch. So as we enter into Acts chapter 13, 
There's one main idea that I would like for you to remember that will come up out of our text. And if we can have that up there. And here, here's what it is. Theological reflection in the church leads to missional expansion of the church. Okay? Theological reflection or thinking about the scriptures. That's all that, that term theological means. Thinking about the scriptures. Theological reflection in the church leads to missional expansion of the church. In other words, as the church reflects on God's story, the gospel story, there is and there should be a natural, a natural lifting of the eyes and looking to the nations and a, and a pressure, a divine pressure to take the gospel to the nations. And we'll see that this missional expansion of the church is both spirit-directed and spirit-empowered. So it's not, it's not a human uh, design. It's not a human-empowered kind of thing. It's a, it's a God-empowered thing. And what, what we're going to do is we're going to build this idea out by focusing on four ideas in the text. Okay? Word, uh, spirit, Opposition and faith. Okay, so that's how we're going to spend our time uh, this morning, thinking about those four words in this particular story. Word, spirit, opposition, and faith. And I will warn you that we'll be a little top-heavy on the word. Okay, so if you're a clock watcher and you see us get pretty far and we're still on the word, don't worry. Obed told me I have 90 minutes this morning. So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, so first, the word. Uh, and here's how I would summarize uh, what I want you to remember with the word uh, in this particular story. The proclaimed and explained word births and builds the church. Okay, the proclaimed and explained word births, I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with it, births and builds the church, and then it propels the church to expand through the same process. We already, we already saw in chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, men from Cyprus, men from Cyrene, going to Antioch, and they, they proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ. They preach the word there, and the church is established. And then Barnabas goes there, and Saul goes there, and they, they teach the word for a year. Okay, so they birth and they build the church in Antioch. Look at chapter 13 and verse 1. Okay, very obvious point here. Among the prophets and teachers. Now let me just pause there. Prophets and teachers, what do they do? Well, they prophesy and they teach, right? And they've been doing this for a year. They receive a message from God. And they explain that message to those who are there. And that shouldn't surprise us. That's been teaching, uh, receiving God's message and explaining God's message has been a foundational aspect of the church since the very beginning. Remember in Acts chapter 2 when uh, Peter preached the message of the gospel and he gathered the 3,000 believers into an assembly? What, what, what were they devoted to? That assembly, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and other things. Okay, so here's this church in Antioch sitting under the authority of these uh, prophets and teachers. 
Now, there were, I think, five, I forgot to count, but I think it's five that were there. We've already met Barnabas and Saul, but look at the rest of the leadership team. You have Simeon, who is also called Niger, which is Latin, actually, for black. Uh, so Niger was most likely a black man from North Africa who, I don't know how he got to Antioch, but he was in Antioch and he was a leader in the church there. And then Lucius from Cyrene. Cyrene is in modern-day Libya. So here you have another North African man, probably a Berber man. And then you have Menaean, who is a childhood companion of King Herod. Uh, and the, the terminology there is such that we know that Menaean was not just a friend, but he was, he was uh, trained alongside of Herod. So this is a very uh, uh, highly uh, regarded individual. He has, he has friends in high places, and he received the best education that the world at that time had to offer. So here you have this very diverse, both ethnically and from an education background, a social background. You have a very diverse leadership team there, and they are all teaching uh, the Word of God. Now, let's fast forward a little bit in our story. We're kind of going to move forward and come back a little bit as we, as we circle around these four different words. In verse 5, when uh, Barnabas and Saul move forward, what does it say that they do? Now they're on Cyprus. They had been sent by the church. In the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues. And what did they do? They preached the word of God. They preached the word of God. In verse 7, what did Sergius Paulus want to hear? He wanted to hear the word of God. And then at the very end, in chapter 12, uh, in verse 12, I'm sorry, what did Sergius Paulus, what, what was he amazed about? He believed, he had just seen an amazing miracle, which we're going to come back to in a minute. But what was he so amazed about? Not the miracle. I mean, you, you and I, we'd be, we'd be amazed at this miracle, but he was amazed at the word of God. So from the beginning to the end in this text, we see the word front and center. It's the foundation of the church in, in Antioch, and it's the message that Paul takes as he goes across the island of Cyprus, and it is what Sergius Paulus is amazed at. Now, we could, we could press forward in the story, but I think we would leave something very important on the table if we did. Just what is this word? Just what is this message that the disciples preached at Antioch for a long period of time? Well, the answer is simple and complex at the same time. Okay? And I, please don't expect me to do in like five minutes what Paul and Barnabas took an entire year to do in Antioch. Because remember, they were teaching the word for, for an entire year. But I want to make some comments about the word because... Remember, what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm arguing for in this text is that theological reflection in the church produces missional expansion of the church. And so what is it that we are reflecting on? Okay? I want to go a little bit more than just say we're reflecting on the word, we're reflecting on the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 21, the, the message, the word that was brought to uh, the Gentiles, the Greeks, in Antioch is described as the good news about Jesus. 
the good news about Jesus. That's the word. Now, when we lived in East Africa, uh, the good news about Jesus required a lot of context. Early on, when I learned uh, Swahili and preached the gospel to people, I could simply say to them, you know, God loves you. Uh, you are a sinner. Uh, you are separated from God. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sin, to take your place. And if you simply believe and trust in him, you will be saved. You will have new life. Uh, and you will go to heaven someday. That's, that is the gospel, right? That's the gospel in a nutshell. But when my friends, my African friends, heard that, who hadn't heard the message before, they interpreted some really key words in that explanation in massively different ways than I intended them. And I'll just give you one example. The word saved. You need to be saved. Now what does that mean? If you, many of you have been Christians for a number of years, and it's a, it's a word that we commonly use. Are you saved or are you not saved? Well, for all of my friends in East Africa, they live in a very different worldview than we do. They, they look at the world around them, and they see it throbbing with spirits, the spirits of their ancestors. And they live under a cloud of fear, wondering when and how will their ancestors cause harm in their life. And so their goal in life is to try and manipulate the activity of the ancestors for their benefit. And so uh, my child is sick, or my farm's not working too well, or my kid needs a good education, and there's all kinds of hindrances to that in the world. And we know that's true. We live in the world. We all see that. Right? And we know why, uh, but their understanding of why is because the ancestors are upset at them. And so they will go to a witch doctor, and they'll ask the witch doctor, what do I need to do? And so they'll put a, they'll put a uh, what's the English word, a bracelet uh, around their arm, or they'll put some sort of charm around their waist, or they'll dig up something in their, in their mud hut and put some herbs there, or they'll cut open a chicken and, and throw the entrails on the ground and read that. And all of that is so that they might be saved from the harm that would come their way. And so when they hear about Jesus, they immediately think, well, Jesus must be a better witch doctor. Well, we know that Jesus is better than a witch doctor, okay? but he's not a better witch doctor. In other words, that all of those categories of life that the, this, this, these uh, uh, ancestors are controlling life and I'm supposed to manipulate them for my good. Okay? When I preach about Jesus and, and you being saved, all of that stayed intact and Jesus just got put in that as someone who can, who can better help me manipulate the ancestors. Now let me ask you, is that the gospel? No, that's not the gospel. Jesus is not just like a better witch doctor. Jesus is something completely different. And so as part of my journey, I had to learn to step back and to place the good news about Jesus in context. Well, who in the world is Jesus? <laughs> right? Uh, and, and why is he so important? Think about now the, the Gentiles in Antioch. Well, 
who is this backwater carpenter from Nazareth who the Jews, we don't even like the Jews anyway. They've got their own religion, their own gods. We have our own gods. And here they come preaching to us that this Jesus, that this Jesus has died on the cross for their sins and that, and that uh, the God of the Jews is, is the one true and living God. And that these Gentiles in Antioch should accept Jesus, that you have to explain, you have a lot of explaining to do, <laughs> uh, to put that in context. And so the message about Jesus, it's about a person, right? The message about Jesus is that he was the promised king who would bring blessing to the nations through his death and through his resurrection and would incorporate all those who believe in him into a new, restored family. That, that God would dwell among them. They would be, he would be their God and they would be his people. That Israel's story, the story that many of us know very well, that Israel's story wasn't just Israel's story, but God was working out his purposes through Israel. Put yourself in the shoes of, the, of the, these people in Antioch now. God was working out his purposes through Israel to make, to make them, Israel, a light to the nations. God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt through miraculous demonstrations of his power. He formed them into a nation at Sinai. He dwelt among them in the tabernacle, then later in the temple. He instituted a bloody sacrificial system that enabled Israel to restore their relationship with God. He gave them rest in their own land, the land promised to Abraham. He raised up a king after his own heart to rule and shepherd them. He promised that king that another king would come and rule perfectly, defeating all their enemies completely and bring peace on earth. Yet Israel rebelled continually spurning God uh, and his kindness, prostituting themselves before the gods of the more powerful nations. God's prophets warned Israel of the judgment and exile from the land. Centuries passed. They were exiled. Later, they were returned to their land to rebuild their homes and temple, yet their stubbornness persisted. They refused to acknowledge the one true and living God. They refused to acknowledge that their real problem was their heart strayed from God and that the temple sacrifices couldn't fix that. And so when the promised king, Jesus, came, Israel refused to accept him. Instead, they, in partnership with the Romans, killed him. But their hateful deed was actually God's intentional and loving provision for sin. Not just for Israel, but for all people. Jesus was the Lamb of God. He gave his life as the final and sufficient sacrifice for sin. And he defeated death through the resurrection. That's the word that was spoken. That's the story that was unfolded. That's the story that has to be understood to make sense of who Jesus is. And it's the same story that, that we find ourselves in today. 
And so as over the course of that year, as that church in Antioch, just I, I think so clearly of all of my friends in Africa and, and as they came to understand that, that this uh, system of, of ancestors and manipulation was, was, would bring them no hope, but their deep problem was the problem of sin. And they come to accept Jesus for who he was. The process of, of, of understanding what that meant, their new identity in Christ, and as, as his people under his authority was a process that brought hope and joy to them and brought hope and joy to this congregation in Antioch so many years ago and is a process that should bring hope and joy to us today in this congregation at King's Cross. As we reflect on this beautiful message of the gospel, our hearts should be filled with joy and it, and, it, and it should bring us to understand that this message isn't to be hidden for ourselves. It's to be proclaimed to the nations. And so in 45 CE in Antioch, all who would believe in Jesus, Jew and Gentile, would be brought into God's family, a reconstituted Israel, a true Israel in the church, Jews and Gentiles in one family, fully participating together, equally, remember the racial diversity in the, in the leadership team? Fully participating together, equally in this new body, Jesus' body, the church. So what do they do? They understood that God made them to be a light for the nations. They understood that this message was for the nations. And so they worshiped and they prayed, chapter 13 and verse 2. They worshiped, they prayed, and as they did that, what happened? What happened? The Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. And after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. The second word is spirit. God's spirit directs and empowers the church toward missional expansion. And so here we have it. The, this first Gentile church reflecting on the good news of Jesus Christ, being directed by the spirit to identify and set apart Barnabas and Paul for this special work, laying hands on them and sending them out as lights to the nations. The spirits directed and the spirits empowered. The spirit empowered. The spirit empowered. And so God's spirit from beginning to end is engaged in the process. This is not a human invention. This is not something that uh, we have to uh, stir up in our own hearts, enough courage, enough perseverance, enough wisdom to get the job done. But this is something that God's Spirit does in our hearts as we reflect on the, on the good news of Jesus Christ and the implications of the good news to the nations. And so the Spirit directs and empowers the church towards missional expansion. The third word is opposition. I wish we had more time. This is such an amazing scene in, on Cyprus. 
So they go to the, the east side of the island to Salamis, uh, and they went to the synagogues. They preached the word. Mark was with them, who eventually became the author of the gospel. And they traveled from town to town. Okay, so I want you to have a picture of Barnabas and Saul and Mark, and they're moving from place to place, just like Jesus did in, in Israel, preaching the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And they get to Paphos. My family and I spent about 10 days in Paphos a few years ago. Amazing place. You can still see uh, a pillar there that Paul was tied to and beaten. You can still see a first century synagogue that a church was built up on top of. Okay? So we're talking about the very place where uh, Barnabas and Saul uh, were. And they met this governor uh, named Sergius Paulus and this prophet. Uh, this false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, this is fascinating. Okay, Put all these things together in verse 6. He's a Jew, and he's a magician. Now, what you know about Jewish history, are Jews usually sorcerers and magicians? No. So he probably wasn't a Jew in good standing in the Jewish community. Okay, And he's a false prophet. So Paul is preaching the gospel and this guy, Elimus, is coming alongside and telling people, no, Jesus is not the Messiah. He's not who Paul says he is. Okay, so there is direct opposition. And you'll see this pattern from here on forward. Every place that Paul goes, when Paul preaches the gospel, there's opposition. And this text is really important because it shows us who's behind that. Okay, So Paul looked down in... Uh, verse um, 9. Paul looked at, he's filled with the Spirit, he looked at the sorcerer, and what did he say to him? You son of the devil. You son of the devil. In other words, the Spirit animating the opposition was the devil himself. The message that that. Uh, Bar Jesus or the son of Jesus, the son of jo Joshua uh, was speaking was a, was a message that was designed by the devil himself to distract, to hinder, to harm the good news about Jesus Christ. And Paul looks at him and he, in the power of the spirit, he causes, he causes um, uh, this man to become blind. And Sergius Paulus sees that. And Sergius Paulus is amazed. So the evil one actively works to hinder the spreading and flourishing of the word. As we as we sit here and we and we reflect on this text, we see we see the word being proclaimed, the spirit empowering the messenger, and we see opposition to the message. But what what what's the fourth thing uh, that we see? And that's faith. And that's faith. At the very end of the text, Sergius Paulus, he heard the message and he believed. Look at, the, look at the last words of verse 12. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the, about the, about the Lord. That brings us back to the word there. The word proclaimed in the midst of opposition the Spirit opening hearts to accept that gospel message. It's simple, but it's complex, isn't it? 
The message about Jesus is both simple and complex. The process of coming to faith is both simple and complex at the same time. And here's this man, Sergius Paulus, who comes to faith. And I could add here, it wasn't only Sergius Paulus that had faith. It was also the church, the entire church at Antioch that had faith, not just to accept the gospel, but to believe that the gospel was for the nations and to send Paul and Barnabas to the nations. And so theological reflection in the church produces missional expansion of the church. The word, the spirit, opposition, and faith. So what does this all mean for us here today? Well, first of all, be in the word. Be in the word. Know the gospel and know the God of the gospel. I gave you a very truncated, short version of the story of the whole Bible, right? From creation to Christ. Reflect on that story. Reflect on God's amazing love, his amazing pursuit for people who continually rejected and spurned him, prostituting themselves before uh, before uh, the gods of the nations. Reflect on that story and who Jesus Christ is. Be in the word. Know the gospel and the God of the gospel. Don't use the Bible to accomplish your purpose in life, but let your purpose be shaped by the, by the Bible. Right? The Bible, God didn't give you the Bible as therapy to make your life nice and warm and better. God gave you the Bible so you could make sense of this world, so you could understand who he is and what he is doing. And so by his grace, you can accept the message of the Bible and fit into into his family. The Bible isn't your tool to make your life the way you want it. The Bible helps you shape your life to fit under its authority. So be in the word. Know the gospel and the God of the and the God of the gospel. And then number two, expect the spirit to propel King's Cross toward missional expansion. Do you, do you expect that of this church? Is this church any different than the church at Antioch? I think not. It's the same gospel that birthed this church and that builds this church. And it's the same spirit that breathes life into this church. And so as you gather and worship together under the authority of the word, you should expect the more you understand the word, the more you're going to be propelled and pushed as a congregation to send and to see your community here come to faith in Christ and those 3,000 unreached language groups who currently have no access to the gospel also hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And so be in the word and expect the spirit to propel your assembly toward missional expansion. It's a great story, isn't it? It's a real story. And we fit in that story. And so let me pray for us now. Father, you are good uh, to us all the time. You have made known to us the good news about Jesus Christ. You have shown us so much in the scriptures. And we are thankful 
that we have been brought into your family. I pray that our understanding of the gospel would grow to such an extent that we are compelled to make that message known to the nations. We pray that your spirit would push us, would push us toward that end. Not for our own glory, but so that your name might be magnified among the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.